Welcome to another episode in this season of Planet Possible. And over the course of the season, we're going to get into the detail behind the really big issues that are critical to the way we manage our water and environment. You'll hear directly from leading figures across the sector from around the world and practitioners who are making a difference every day through their work. And I'm delighted that we've also got our season sponsor who enables us to bring Planet Possible to you. Huge thanks to Binnie's for sponsoring season three. I'm Nikki Roach, and alongside being a passionate advocate for all things water and environment, I'm a fellow of SIWEM. If you're new to Planet Possible, SIWEM is the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management. Our members in over 90 countries are professionals with a breadth and depth of expertise in the topics that are shaping the future of our planet. And across this season, we're getting into the detail of those topics, seeking out the evidence-led views and authentic opinions that help us better understand what's really possible for the planet. So let's get started. And in today's episode, we're exploring being on the front line of climate change, and we've got a great interview coming up. So to help unpick this topic, I'm joined by another excellent co-host and the Exec Director of Flood and Coastal Risk Management at the Environment Agency, which is the Environmental Regulator for England, Caroline Douglas. Welcome, Caroline. It's great to have you with us. G'day, Nikki. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Delighted you're here too. So Caroline and I are going to listen to our guest interview together in a moment and we'll discuss our reflections. So our guest interview today is with Her Excellency Sabra Nordine. Sabra was appointed under the Climate Emergency Act and is the first special envoy for climate change in the Maldives. She graduated from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London with a Master of Science in State, Society and Development and previously served as a Secretary for Foreign Relations at the President's Office in the Maldives. It was fantastic speaking to Sabra and I was particularly interested to hear about how COP26 felt as an attendee from a small island nation. It wasn't as ambitious as we'd wanted it to be. It's hard to measure success for all states equally when not all states are feeling the impacts of climate change in the same way. And I think small island states and vulnerable countries really got that message out during the final plenary. So Caroline, before we head to our guest interview, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where the UK is really feeling the impacts of climate change. I think the UK is feeling the impacts in a whole lot of different places. And, you know, in my own particular area, in terms of flood and coastal risk management, you know, over 6 million properties are at risk from flooding from rivers and the sea. And so we are seeing those impacts increasing all the time. We're experiencing those impacts. And so we really need to think hard about how we deal with them, what we can do in the future to not just protect or mitigate against the impacts, but also learn how to live with them and become resilient and adapt over time. I think that's a great build and a great segue really into the interview with Sabra. So um, let's hear from Sabra now. So a very warm welcome, Sabra, to Planet Possible. Thank you, Nikki. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you with us. And Sabra is in the Maldives this morning and it looks beautiful and sunny, although we were just discussing a little too warm for this time of year. So I guess that takes us really into the kind of first thing I want to talk to you about, which is the challenges that the Maldives are facing in both adaptation and resilience to climate change. Can you give me a bit of a feel for the the context of climate change in the Maldives at the moment? Well, I mean, the Maldives is one of the most low-lying countries in the world. We are known as a small island state, but quite a lot of people refer to as a large ocean state because 99% of the Maldives is actually made up of the ocean. We have about 1,200 coral islands uh, spread out over a very vast area of ocean and population of approximately 450,000 people. 
who are trying to live their lives across these far-flung islands. So we've always been vulnerable to climate change um, and the pace of climate change that's happening now has meant that we are even more vulnerable. So we, I guess you could say that we've always been on the front lines of, of the climate crisis, but we are definitely feeling it more as the impacts get quicker and more intense. And what does that look like in practice at the moment? How, how are you seeing life changing in the Maldives? One of the impacts that we see more frequently now is the effects of coral bleaching, because as, as we have warmer years, it takes longer for the corals to recover from previous years of bleaching. When you add you know, additional local stresses like development or infrastructure and economic activity, that also increases the vulnerabilities of, of the coral reefs. And there are, they are our primary defense system, I would say, against surging waves and rising sea levels. They are the frontline barrier for us. We see more tidal surges, more floods, an increase in kind of the intensity of storms and, and, and the flooding, um, more beach erosion. And these are the things that, you know, we've always faced them, but now it's more intense and that the pace has seemed to, uh, it's quickened. Mm. And are you finding that you're able to adapt to that? I mean, is it changing is it changing life? Because I suspect, I suspect the economy is relatively dependent on things like tourism. So actually seeing those kind of changes happening to parts of the Maldives that I would imagine are also heavily dependent on tourism, is that, is that making much of a change? Adaptation is actually, you know, it's one of our key priorities when it comes to our own climate change negotiations because mitigation alone in the Maldives in terms of us just cutting down our carbon emissions is not going to really help us if the largest carbon emitters are not cutting down as quickly and as much as we need them to. Adaptation is our main priority, you know, things like how can we develop our infrastructure in a way that it is high enough to to withstand projected rising rising sea levels or flooding or how do we protect our critical infrastructure which is actually all our infrastructure because there's not much room beyond the coastline for us to build on how do we protect for uh, schools for instance or hospitals from floods fresh water how do we ensure that people have access to fresh water even things like extreme heat you know we don't have much in terms of agriculture we we're actually very import dependent in the Maldives there is some agriculture and how do we protect those industries from changes in in temperature and even changes in the in the working hour like if it's too hot during the day working hours need to change or you know things like outdoor sports these are things that i guess we need to think about more now and um all of our industries where tourism and fisheries are incredibly dependent on how healthy our our oceans are and how our, our natural systems are. And with the impacts of climate change, you know, fisheries in terms of fish stocks, what if impact will that have on, on our fish stocks? Maldives has one of the most sustainable tuna fisheries in the world. But, you know, not everyone else in the world fish the way we do. It's very difficult because we also we have to compete on a market that doesn't value our sustainability as it should be. 
so people who are trolling, paying no absolutely no attention to quotas, are able to sell their fish, and that doesn't really help in terms of trying to promote those ideas of sustainability and marine protection. Yeah, absolutely. So where does your where does your role as special envoy for climate change fit into? The landscape that you've just described? So my role was created under new climate emergency legislation which was enacted last year. The idea is to give a very special focus on the issue of climate change to the Maldives, to really advocate internationally for ambitious climate action in terms of cutting down global carbon emissions, to try and make sure we limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, and also to really convey the importance of us having access to the resources that we need to address the issues of adaptation and now loss and damage. I guess on an individual level, Sabra, what what motivates you to do it? I mean, you can hear the passion in your voice, but I would imagine it's a pretty challenging job. So what's the personal motivation like? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't always, you know, working in climate change. I was very much doing international relations, foreign policy, policing, <laughs> counterterrorism, that kind of work. Through our international relations work in the Maldives, it's always been connected to climate advocacy. But I think it may sound really cheesy, but uh, having my son three years ago and then kind of seeing him grow up with an interest in uh, marine animals and really just being so curious about the things that he's seeing and realizing that what he's seeing now isn't even close to what we were seeing when we were younger or even what my parents were seeing when they were younger that those you know baselines of wonder in the ocean are are shifting and to realize that if we want to remain in the Maldives and to enjoy the lives and the the kind of livelihoods that we have for so long this is really the most crucial issue of our times. Our season sponsors for Planet Possible are Binnies, who recognise the opportunity that bringing together a breadth of professions creates to be truly amazing. Their engineers, scientists, constructors and environmental professionals collaborate to drive innovation and Binnies, like Simon, believe that podcasts are a fantastic way to showcase some of the role models, global best practice and innovation that we have across the water and environment sector. We're grateful to Binnies for their support as it enables us to bring Planet Possible to you this season. So you were at COP26, weren't you, back in Glasgow in November? We're kind of roughly halfway, I think, between COP26 and COP27 now. So I would be really keen to hear your reflections on COP26, the good, the bad and the ugly, really, and, and maybe what you're thinking about COP27 at this point. COP26 was, it was quite a, I think, especially after, you know, with the pandemic and everything just starting to kind of open up again, we were kind of thrown into this, huge conference and it was very exciting but also exhausting and we we started off I think feeling more optimistic that it would be there would it would be very ambitious and we were going to really get into adaptation and things especially in terms of finance and loss and damage we were we were going to move have some very concrete steps but then as the conference went on I think our expectations tempered down a little 
the final declaration, although it, you know, it, it has, it is ambitious, it wasn't as ambitious as we'd wanted it to be. It's hard to measure success for all states equally when not all states are feeling the impacts of climate change in the same way. And I think small island states and vulnerable countries really got that message out during the final plenary, even though we acknowledged that, you know, we needed a deal and we needed an agreement and there were things in the agreement like the global goal on adaptation that are absolutely critical for us not everything such as loss and damage and some of the ambition were not where we wanted it to be but that's that's what we're working towards for cop 27 so i mean so what would good look like for cop 27 for you what what was missing from cop 26 well for cop 27 i mean i think it's it's really important that we are able to really ratchet up those ambitions, especially in terms of global carbon emission mitigation, to, to reach that 1.5 degree level. We have about 90 months now to, to make sure that we can get emissions down enough. 1.5 is bad for coral reefs. <laughs> Two degrees or more is, 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 not, is not something that we, we should be accepting. And we know that there are technological solutions and we know that when push comes to shove or when the issue is critical enough for the world, such as during the pandemic, there, it, there can be enough of a mobilization in terms of financing and technology and science in order to meet those expectations. And I think climate change deserves that same level of mobilization. Are you feeling that there is more of a sense of urgency globally about this. I, I guess what I'm looking for, Sabra, is seeds of, of hope, really, in all of this. Do you think there are any, or is it feeling quite bleak still at the moment? No, I like to remain hopeful. And I think there is a, a shift, especially in terms of the private sector. And also young people are not going to just kind of stand back and say that this is good enough anymore when it isn't. What we're seeing is more of an interest, especially in financial private sector about climate change and incorporating that into their thinking when they're investing into certain projects and I think that really does shift the the conversation and technology I mean it's renewable energy solar energy is now you know cheaper than it ever has been and for countries like the Maldives I mean the state of the world at the moment with the um invasion of Ukraine and in all the conflicts, it has meant that the attention that climate change deserves, for instance, like the two IPCC reports that were issued recently, the level of attention it deserves, they haven't gotten. But I don't think people are underestimating the urgency because every other issue in the globe is connected to this so much in terms of energy, fuel, health, public health, national security, resilience, it's it's all connected, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I get that sense that there is more of an appreciation that this isn't something in the future that we can push out anymore. It is here, but obviously I'm in the UK and we're seeing the impact of climate change, but we're not on the front line in the same way that Maldives are. So it is a difficult jump to make, I think, to, to think that, climate change oh it's it's you know it's still very far out in the future all these extreme impacts but it's not i mean we've seen the extreme impacts we've seen the extreme weather events but that is part of my job and it it is 
it's something that we face domestically as well as internationally how to try and convince people to act now and to really mainstream climate change across all sectors rather than it being something that is just discussed by the ministry of environment or you know the ministry of fisheries it's something that we have to incorporate into every single building that we plan into the maldives we face the same conflicts when you have people who need immediate developmental needs like housing and infrastructure and transport and and how you do that in a way that is climate resilient protects your environment and also you know protects livelihoods and also have the resources to address all those issues yeah that constant tension between the urgency of life but the this huge threat that we face absolutely are you seeing any areas of real success in terms of incorporating that thinking into more mainstream life or does it still feel at the moment like it's something that the you know ministries of you know environment and fisheries are dealing mm-hmm. with separately well i am seeing it and especially through i genuinely think education and awareness is the most powerful thing that we can develop to try and convince more people that this is a critical issue and some of the things that we're doing in the maldives like trying to ban single use plastic or trying to increase the number of uh, protected areas and how especially not just increase the number of protected areas but manage these areas better so that they are benefiting the environment but are also still able to provide livelihoods for the people who who live around them i think i am seeing that because there are more conversations around those issues there are more ngos more organizations putting pressure on us to make sure that we are you know meeting their expectations and to even if i'm even able to make a company think that climate change is something that they need to think about when they're developing a building or a harbor then i'm going to consider it as a step forward even if it's not as big a step forward as i as i think it should be so i guess sort of rounding out our conversation a little you've you've talked a little about where you're hopeful where would you want to see both maybe domestically but but internationally greater and faster action what are some of the really big areas that you think we need to move on well primarily on reducing emissions mm. i mean without that you know we can do everything right in the maldives but if if we aren't able to reduce uh, global carbon emissions to limit temperature rise to 1.5 then there's not much else we can do the other thing is really access to support and and resources for adaptation in terms of not just financing but also technical capacity and and technology if we have you know access to some of the technology that's already available in other parts of the world that we could use or try out in the Maldives that in terms of adaptation that is something that we really require and and it it's the kind of ease of access to those resources that we're really trying to reform because most of the time even if we're able to access funds it's so delayed that the the ground realities have often changed and that kind of keep bearing in mind the need for transparency when it comes to international financing and support how do we address the issues that we need to with the urgency that's required and from a technology perspective what are the barriers 
looking like why is technology a blocker i understand from a finance perspective you've just explained really beautifully but that access to technology is finance the reason the technology is not available or is there something else going on there well for the maldives one of the issues is that we're so small so the scale of it makes it more expensive but the other side of it is that because we're small you can use the maldives as a testing ground to see if these technologies will even work and then expand to other areas from there. Sabra, we could talk forever, I'd love to, but um, it's been absolutely fascinating really just hearing you explain the scale of the challenge and really from a country that is absolutely at the at the front of some of those impacts. And so thank you for articulating them so beautifully and thank you for joining us on Planet Possible. It was an absolute joy to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. So Caroline, what are your initial reflections on the interview with Sabra? Oh, what a great interview. And, and, you know, just really quite interesting to hear the challenges that the Maldives are facing as an island nation, not only, you know, being low lying on the front line of the climate crisis, but also, you know, the coral bleaching events that they're facing, the recovery time that they have to to deal with, adaptation uh, being really key to, to what they need to do to be able to cope with what climate change is, is doing alongside mitigation. But the thing that also really stuck in, in my head was, um, I think it was Sabra said, 90 months to get emissions down to the 1.5 degree level. That's really quite a stark and scary number when you think about it in that context and must be just really quite confronting for, for a country like the Maldives and, and given you know where they are and situated in an ocean. I agree. That really stuck out for me. There is something about it feeling like a countdown in when we don't talk about it in years resonates really loudly, doesn't it? And I think you're right there. I mean, they're obviously feeling it right now. You've obviously worked outside of England as well. You've worked overseas. So did listening to Sabra kind of resonate for any of your other experiences aside from those that you've had here in England? Yeah, well, obviously being Australian, um, working, I've worked in coastal land management in Australia, but also, you know, Australians really love their beaches and love the coastline. 85% of Australia's population lives within 50 kilometres of the coastline. So while Australian, you know, Australian population is not huge, it's 25 million people, but to have that many people, a huge country, but that many people so close, and therefore, you know, the, the sea level rise and the impacts from climate change are really going to be felt on very on lots of people, not only in terms of their livelihoods but in terms of their whole life because because Australians love their coast you know they really do (laughs) it's interesting actually when I think we think about it in more emotive terms as well there's the practical economic aspects of climate change but there is also that the lifestyle impact what will it mean for the the landscapes that we really treasure in places like the Maldives and I guess Australia as well where we really do associate the sea with a with a lifestyle and an experience you can you can start to think about how real that change is starting to feel for people. So what about here in England then? If we if we turn our attention back here to England, what are the big challenges that you and your role at the Environment Agency are are tackling? So when it comes to England and the number of people who, you know, live on the coast, there's around about three million people who live in seaside villages in, in England. Not only do those people live and work on the coast, you know, the seaside villages provide uh, you know a huge economic boost for those areas as well. And I think it's the latest figures are around about thirteen billion pounds of tourism import to local coastal communities. So impacts from climate change, from sea level rise 
uh, you know, not just are going to affect people sort of personally, but it's also going to affect their livelihoods. And then you add on top of that the impacts on infrastructure, whether it's roads, rail, power, water, you know, that's a cost to those communities as well and, and dealing with that. So England doesn't have the sunshine that Australia has or the Maldives <laughs> have, but it does have, you know, a lot of people go to coastal areas for holidays for and as well as living there's also community the fishing communities and those sorts of other industries that exist on the coastline and and they're all going to be impacted as a result and that's something we really need to think about so i'm really keen to hear practically what you're doing but before i ask you that i'm also interested in your opinion about whether the message of climate change and the, and the impact on coastal communities is starting to cut through we saw a huge amount of coverage of COP26 last November in Glasgow. And obviously we touched on that with Sabra. We're kind of halfway to COP27. And in your job, travelling around England and, and meeting communities that will be impacted by flooding and probably have been impacted by flooding and um, and the changes on the coast. Is that message cutting through that this isn't just weather, this is climate change, do you think? I think it is for some communities, but, you know, whether that's all the way through, I don't think that is the case. I think people reflect on what's happened in the last 10 years or you know their lifetime that they've lived in a location and if they haven't experienced any sort of big storms and the impacts of those then it's really hard for them to relate and think well is that climate change or is that just a big storm that they've been hit by but I think when we put the story together when we look at say the east coast for example and that's one of the things that is most sort of threatening for us is an east coast surge sea level rise together with an east coast surge you know, high tide, we could have some really devastating impacts. And a lot of the protection measures we have in place on the East Coast have been there since, probably mainly since 1953, when this country suffered its worst losses from flooding in terms of life, over 300 people. That same East Coast surge impacted on the Netherlands, who were the other side of the North Sea, over 1,800 people died in that same event. So it's those sorts of events that, you know, we need to remind people of that actually it's not just a one-off. They will happen and they will continue to happen. And climate change mightn't be the sole factor, but it is going to intensify the impacts of those storms. We're always going to get them, but actually climate change is having an impact on them. And, and so knowing what is going to happen, being able to deal with it, being aware of it is really important for all the communities and important for individuals to understand that as well. So there's lots of messaging. There's actually a lot of work for us to do, whether it's local authorities, environment agency, professional organisations who work in flood risk management to help people understand actually it's real, it's increasing, but there is things you can do to both adapt and mitigate those impacts. So let's touch on those. You've talked about adaptation and you've talked about mitigation or resilience. So what kind of stuff is the Environment Agency doing practically at the moment? There's lots of things that we're doing in the Environment Agency, but one of the things I'd really like to start with is our long-term strategy. We have a great flood and coastal erosion risk management strategy released about 18 months ago. And that strategy has a really ambitious long-term vision of being a nation ready for and resilient to flooding and coastal change today, tomorrow and out to 2100. So you don't often see strategies that have that long-term ambition built in. And within that overall ambition, there are three objectives. One is to make sure that places across the country are climate resilient and looking at things we can do around that. The second ambition is about looking, making sure that infrastructure that supports those communities and supports those places 
is resilient to flooding and coastal risk management. And the third one is about making sure that individuals and communities are able to adapt and deal with that flooding and coastal risk. So there's a lot of things that when you break all that down, there's a lot of actions that go along with all of that. So they're at a really high level. But I think that's the starting point. From a more practical perspective, we're doing a lot around coastal defences. So we delivered a six-year program on time and on budget, better protecting 314,000 homes. And, you know, the teams in Environment Agency and all the partners we work with are really proud of having got there for that. And government's invested another £5.2 billion to do another six years and to better protect another 300,000 homes. So we're continuing to work on that. They're the really practical things, building flood defences. Alongside that, there's things like natural flood management, and adaptation that we need to think about. So what are the adaptation measures we need to do? Together with that, we have an ambition as an environment agency to be a net zero organisation, but to 2030. And that means construction and all the things that we work towards to try and deliver our capital program. We have to think about how we can reduce our carbon footprint overall. So you mentioned that you want to be net zero by 2030. And, you know, flood defences feel like pouring a lot of concrete. How is that transition going for the Environment Agency? I mean, I would think culturally your staff are probably some of the most on board with the need for that change of any in the country. But how effectively are you managing to make that transition? Are you seeing big changes in the way that you're delivering projects, for example? Well, we knew it was an ambitious target when we set it. And, you know, I think even now I don't think we have all the answers and I don't think anyone in industry thinks they have all the answers to how you you actually reduce your carbon footprint in that way. But we do have a lot of trials underway and it's not just us. We're working really closely with our partners as well as with the broader construction industry and and other infrastructure providers. So we're trialling ultra-low and low-carbon concrete. We're also trialling using fibre instead of steel in our different defences. And all of those we're testing and we share all of our learning with other parts of the industry. We've won awards for that sort of work. So I think it's about... You know, and this is probably where the Australian in me comes out. It's about having a go and taking a risk and trying some different things. If we don't have a go and experiment or or pilot some of these areas and research about what can be done, we're not going to achieve that that target, and we're not going to be able to to address the challenge that effectively Sabra laid out for us in her interview. You know, the ninety months it means we've got to do stuff now and we've got to we can't wait we actually have to trial things and get things going and we're doing our best we absolutely don't have all the answers but we're having a go and that's what's really important I'm reminded of uh, we had Emma Howard Boyd actually who you'll know well I'm sure on the pod last season and one of the things that Emma talked about was the importance of not waiting for perfection before we get started. And I think I'm hearing something similar from you. It is important to try. And that's innovation, isn't it? We're not expecting to be successful all of the time. In fact, it wouldn't be innovation if we were successful all of the time. But trying is really important. OK, so you've talked a bit about the high level strategy, which is great. Can you give me a feel for some of the practical examples about how you're kind of making a difference to communities in England? Certainly. So in terms of the high level strategy that we've done, I talked about, you know, we've got the capital program and the investment. Those sorts of uh, investments have led to flood defence schemes, say on the whole frontages, the Thames barrier and the Thames defences are, you know, really iconic examples of of defences that came about uh, following the 1953 flooding that I mentioned earlier. We've also got the Boston barrier. 
But then we've also got schemes such as Medbury in West Sussex, which is a managed realignment scheme, which isn't just about sort of concrete walls. It's actually about working with the natural processes of the coast. I think the other thing that we want to do and, and are looking at is, you know, there's 25 projects across the country, which are local communities, local authorities, partners and ourselves working on flood and coast resilience innovation. So 25 projects that are trialling different things and different approaches that we can then learn from and adapt and apply in different areas. So they're really great because they're local communities driving local solutions and it's not just about building flood walls, it's actually about looking at some different things that will work in, in those particular scenarios. They're not all going to work, but that's the point of having a go at them and uh, learning from the failures as much as learning from the successes. So they're really exciting and it's great that the communities are thinking for themselves and being able to, to build their own resilience. So if I was to ask you what kind of one big message you'd like to leave listeners with thinking about the interview with her from Sabra and the reflections that you've just made yourself, Caroline, what's the one thing you'd like to leave listeners with? I'd really like listeners to be aware of the climate risk that we're facing, to think about the sorts of things we're doing and to really try some different things. You know, we do need to be able to mitigate the impacts. We need to know what the impacts are. We need to mitigate them. We also need to adapt to them because we know they're going to happen. And so you know, countries like the Maldives are going to have to adapt. Likewise, we have to adapt and think about that. It is about changing our thinking. And, you know, it's my CEO, Sir James Bevan, who said our thinking needs to change faster than the climate. And we do need to really think hard about what's coming, what can we do about it, have a go at some different things. We mightn't succeed all the time, but we need to learn and adapt and you know, work out how we can live with what's coming in order to save the planet and the environment for the future. Well, it's a very positive and practical note to leave it on, Caroline. Thank you. I wish we could talk for a lot longer, but time has, as usual, flown by. You can subscribe to Planet Possible as usual on your podcast player. Make sure you never miss an episode. And we'd love to hear your ratings and reviews too. And I can't wait to share the rest of the season with you. All that leaves me to say is a huge thank you to our guest today. So that's Her Excellency Sabra Nordine and my superb co-host, Caroline. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you very much for having me. That's it, everyone, for now. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Planet Possible is produced by Bulb. B-W-L-B, Bulb. The best ideas, the strongest content.